This is Judaism Unbound, episode 84, The Jewish Catalog, Then and Now. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And our guest today is Riv Ellen Prell. She is an anthropologist who served as professor of American studies at the University of Minnesota. Now she is Professor Emerita. And she also served in the past as director of the Center for Jewish Studies at the University of Minnesota. She has written extensively about American Jewish culture from the late 19th century to the present, including dozens of articles and two important books. One is called Fighting to Become American Jews, Jews, Gender, and the Anxiety of Assimilation. And her other book, Prayer and Community, the Havara in American Judaism, is a winner of the National Jewish Book Award. We are thrilled to have her on Judaism Unbound today to discuss some of the goings-on of the 1960s and 1970s and the extent to which they are relevant to and informative about the goings-on in Jewish life here in in the 21st century. So, Professor Rivellen Prell, welcome to Judaism Unbound. We're so thrilled to have you. Thanks, and thanks for the opportunity to talk with you. Great. Well, we wanted to start, uh, uh, you know, we really uh, wanted to get your help thinking through something that people ask us all the time, which is when we discuss what we're doing and our larger visions for our project, a lot of people say, so is what you're talking about a 21st century version of the Jewish catalog? And, you know, then I sort of explain how we really hope that what people will do is is take our material and then create little discussion groups at home and try things out in new ways. And people say, well, is that just a 21st century version of the Havara movement? And a lot of times I say, I think so. That might be a good way to describe it, but I'm not really sure. And so we finally wanted to bring an expert on about the Jewish catalog and the Havara movement and everything that was going on back at that point in time in the 60s and the 70s. And so I was wondering, just as a place to start, could you help us understand how, in particular, the Jewish catalog and the Havara movement and anything else you think is, is important sort of played into some of the transitions that were going on? It's a great question, and it is always very exciting for people from the generation that created the Chavurot and the Jewish catalog to be in dialogue with people today who are struggling with some parallel issues about where does Jewishness and Judaism fit into the world that people are part of and in opposition to the Judaism and Jewishness often that they came of age into. So let's begin with the era before we talk specifically about the Jewish piece of it. The Jewish catalog was published in 1973 as a great experiment published by a very mainstream press called the Jewish Publication Society, which is still publishing. Uh, To this day, the only book that ever outsold it was the Bible. And the Jewish catalog, one, two, and three, though the first Jewish catalog was the really significant one, sold about half a million copies. Interestingly, the Jewish catalog in 1973 came out the same year that a book called Our Bodies, Ourselves came out, also in 1973, published by the Boston Women's Health Collective, a health collective that has gone on to produce many, many, many volumes about women and girls and aging women's health. And it too came out of a kind of collective. But of course, both of them owe so much to the great countercultural work called the Whole Earth Catalog, that was published between 1968 and 1972. Um, Each of them saw itself, the groups who produced it, as a do-it-yourself approach to living on earth or for women being in charge of their own bodies and health. And for the young Jews in their 20s who created the Jewish catalog, the idea of a whole different approach to Jewishness and Judaism. And to talk about why that happened, we really have to take a step back, and forgive me, but as an academic, of course, we need to provide some context, some understanding of a period that roughly today we think of as the 1960s. But the truth is that it was really in the early 1970s that the full force of what had happened from the mid-60s forward really took shape. And not surprisingly, at least to me, 1973 was the year that the United States withdrew from Vietnam. So the huge anti-war movement centered so much in the student left. 
succeeded in some sense in completely undermining the confidence of Americans in what was happening in that highly immoral and problematic war. So what happens from the early 60s through 1973? Well, the first movement that has a huge impact on the nation is really the civil rights movement. And though that movement has existed since the end of slavery in one form or another from abolition forward, the movement started by Dr. King is a movement of direct action and protest in the street, refusing to cooperate, refusing to wait, attacking authority as it was known in this country and bringing about a true revolutionary social movement that will just change how people do politics and how we think about race and justice in the nation. And of course, it's then followed by a a dramatic youth movement of the baby boom, a sexual revolution, experimentation with drugs and ideas about spirituality, movements for identity, the women's movement, the Latino movement, the Asian American movement. None of these movements were homogeneous. None of these movements were made up of people who all got along or agreed. Not the civil rights movement, which also had a black freedom movement that was far to the left of it. Certainly not the women's movement, but all of them circle around some shared themes. Baby boomers in particular, there is a deep mistrust and hostility to authority. And let's just say there is no way to overstate that. There is a tremendous sense that no institution can be trusted, an enormous rage at parents for their false, dishonest, and inauthentic ways of living their lives. The radicalism of that, which we could see in the Black Panthers or what was also called the Black Freedom Movement, or the most extreme left of the student anti-war movement, which was called the Weather Underground, viewed America in the following way. Everyone had talked about, how do I get a piece of the pie? How do I make it in this society? And their view was, the pie is poisoned. There's nothing to take from it. And that is why the word revolution was floating around constantly at the end of the 60s and into the early 70s. It was part of a long tradition in the United States that stretches well back into the 1800s, that was anti-capitalist, anti-modernist, in which the idea was go back to the land or live in collectives or come up with alternatives. You don't need to participate in the larger society. And I suppose looking back, I have to say, because it's my own generation, there was something phenomenally arrogant about the fact that what made the new left different from the old left is that the old left was committed to the working class and the new left amazingly thought the revolutionary vanguard was of all people, college students, of which the new left happened to be those college students. So there was an idea that revolution was at hand or radical change was at hand, that there was a horrific war that needed to be stopped. Richard Nixon's corruption was a critical part of this and that it was time to radically rethink how to be and what it meant to be an American. So what did this mean for young Jews? Well, maybe your listeners know or don't know that the new left was profoundly uh, overrepresented with Jews involved within it. The women's movement, including the most radical parts of the women's movement, again, a profound overrepresentation by young Jewish women. But that was a very different kind of politics and culture than those people who were very much inside their Jewishness and their Judaism and wanted to be part of this revolution, but as Jews, not as assimilated Jews or not as Jews who didn't want to be known as Jewish in the left because their Jewishness was viewed as so parochial. Rather, these people saw themselves as Jewish, as cosmopolitan, as part of the left, but building on all the same critiques that I've just talked with you about. There were many aspects of that that we might call the Jewish counterculture. The radical Zionist movement came out of that, a brief, extremely interesting movement that was deeply Zionist, that saw itself as part of a national movement for liberation, but completely rejecting 
American mainstream politics, and even their parent Zionism. And then one other part that you alluded to at the beginning, which was what some people call the Chavura movement. None of these were movements. It would vastly overstate it to say that they were well organized or that they had uh, meetings, national meetings, uh, Zionist congresses. None of those things happened. But they did see themselves as part of a youth movement. And there was a brief period when all of these groups would get together and meet and imagine a future. And the Chavura movement, such as it is, starts with the first Chavura in Somerville, Massachusetts in 1967. Uh, and they begin something called Chavura Shalom, which oddly enough was created by a grant from a Protestant foundation called the Danforth Foundation that was very committed to religious diversity. And they started as an alternative seminary headed by a number of teachers, but one who was most important named Art Green. So it's not a surprise that at the end of the 60s, they founded themselves as a, a seminary because every male who joined them was able to get a deferment from having to join the military and fight in the war. They couldn't be drafted. Many, many young men went to the Jewish Theological Seminary, went to Hebrew Union College as part of a way to avoid fighting in that highly immoral war. Chavarat Shalom was a, a, a seminary. It met on Saturdays for worship together. And three of its members were the people who created the Jewish catalog. And so the three of them decided, especially on the model of the Whole Earth Catalog, to see what they could do to create something like that for Jews who might find it interesting. And Richard tells a story repeatedly about trying to build the first sukkah at Chavarat Shalom. And the people building the sukkah had never built anything in their lives, had no idea what to do. <laughs> and Richard said, gosh, wouldn't it be nice if we had a whole earth catalog that would tell us how to do something we have no idea how to do, which is build a sukkah. And that little moment gave birth to the Jewish catalog. The whole earth catalog was a visionary, wild, fascinating newsprint publication that had lots of advertisements for how to buy seeds or other things to live an alternative life, but philosophical things about how to think about the world and ecology and the environment. And the cover of the most famous Whole Earth catalog was the Earth, taken from early shots of, of um, outer space exploration to say the earth is part of a cosmos. And what are we going to do about that? So the Jewish catalog brings that interest in thinking broadly and widely with how do you do stuff and how do you do stuff for yourself? And lots of information about where you could, this really dates it, where could you rent a movie about Jew Jewishness, whether it was a popular Hollywood movie or a documentary, it lists every video store in the United States that carries Jewish things. And at the same time, having deep and rich uh, philosophical discussions of the nature of mikveh, which is uh, the obligation for uh, a, an observant Jewish woman to avoid sexual contact during the period of menstruation, to then go to the mikveh and immerse herself and drawing on poetics to understand the nature of rebirth. It talked about how to bake challah, how to make Shabbat candlesticks, how to put up a mezuzah and what prayer to say. It was also a, a, a collective in the sense not of an organized group of people, but it drew on all kinds of people to write about this, to do artwork for it, to give photographs for it, to create bibliography for it. So you can see the way in which the, the Jewish catalog lives out that alternative view of dropping out of institutions, moving away from the larger culture. And in the case of the Jewish counterculture, that larger culture was not only the United States, but it was the synagogue. It was federations. It was in every way the living embodiment of a vision that put people outside of the dominant culture. And in this case, that was what, had, what they viewed as a suburban Jewish life that was so 
empty and irrelevant and lacking in spirituality. And instead, awkwardly, when I look at the Jewish catalog today, it's full of images of Hasidim, of black hats, of people who look like Eastern Europe, who embody the world that their parents and even some of their grandparents ran away from for embarrassment of its unattractive qualities in favor of acculturation or assimilation. So the Jewish catalog is, I think it should be forgiven for that, but very much a product of the 70s that, that romanticized or drew on alternative ways to be Jewish that reject a kind of American assimilationist outlook. And so that is the context of the Jewish catalog. When I leaf through the Jewish catalog, one of the things that I'm really struck by is the aesthetics of it. I mean, it's not a it's not an aesthetic of the 21st century, but it's also quite clear that there's a lot going on there beyond the written word. And I was curious if you could just share with us a little bit of, of I know this is something that you're also interested in. Well, you've really hit on what I think many people believe is probably the most unique quality of the Jewish catalog, and that was how it looked. Because this was not an aesthetic that was highly polished. This was not an aesthetic that attempted to look like any other Jewish publication that had come before it. And it wasn't just the photographs, which were very a very important part of it. But it was, for example, the rise of calligraphy and a Jewish calligraphy was a very important aesthetic movement. Again, drawing back on old traditions of Jewish calligraphy, whether it was Torah writing or other kinds of calligraphy, but also another experimentation with an aesthetic that was totally different. And the Jewish catalog was fun and it was funny. They didn't just explain what it meant to keep kosher. They drew images of kosher animals or they divided a crab up to say what was kosher and what was not kosher. You couldn't look at this and not laugh. And it's worth saying before we leave the Jewish catalog, something that doesn't get written about enough. And that is the Jewish catalog had a tremendous impact on Jews worldwide. People who were living in Poland under communism and exploring their Jewishness as a part of the rejection of communism have actually described sitting in a graveyard, which was the only place that they felt safe, reading the Jewish catalog to figure out how to be Jewish. It was true also for uh, the Soviet movement. Many movements in the, under the, the communist bloc looked to the Jewish catalog to help them figure out how to make up what it meant to be Jewish because they had no idea at all. It's cafeteria approach, here's this, try that, you might find that interesting, was very important. And I would also say that that was what it was criticized for because the Jewish catalog was attacked by some of the big lights of the conservative movement by a man named Marshall Sclair, who was really a founder of the social scientific study of American Judaism, who wrote a devastating critique of it. And what many of the critiques of it came from that older generation was, this is ridiculous. These are people who equate, how do you make a candle with Jewish law? They are destroying Judaism. So this was not uh, this was not appreciated by everyone in its own time, and it was seen as a threat. And the whole movement of a Jewish counterculture was seen as a threat by an older generation of Jews. My critique and sort of concern of the Jewish catalog, which I wanted to discuss with you, was more you know, and, and also right was is more that yeah, it could be used. I can easily see how it would be used by folks in uh, Russia, the Soviet Union at that time who were saying, how do I be Jewish? And this is kind of a how-to guide. And I guess my question is whether the, is whether my read on the Jewish catalog that I get kind of from leafing through it and looking at various parts of it is, is right or not, where it, it strikes me that the project that's going on there is one that's fundamentally saying, look, we reject the authority of various institutions of synagogues, of rabbis, but fundamentally we accept that Judaism is what Judaism was. And we're only saying, so we're not critiquing the the construction of Judaism itself, but rather only the authority structure that says that uh, you have to go through those 
institutions in order to get it. And I suppose that there's a dimension there that's similar to the Protestant Reformation. But what I think that we're getting at here goes more radical than that and says, no, actually, Judaism itself is in crisis. And what we need today is a cadre of people who are reshaping Judaism itself and that that can and probably must be done by regular people, not by the authorities. And and so I'm wondering, if am I being overly limited in my understanding of what the project of the Jewish catalog was? And also, how does that strike you in terms of whether that's a, a major change in terms of at least what we're advocating is needed today? Let's take your very important questions and kind of divide them out in the following way. One way to respond is to ask the really interesting question, which is, can tradition ever itself be a kind of radicalism? And that was where I think not only the the Chavurah and the Jewish catalog came out of, but at that same time, there were the Berrigan brothers, two priests who were anti-war and used their tradition as a way to be critical, were arrested, who went about uh, radical change as Catholics. And we can see a similar parallel in the women's movement, which is parallel to this. And there is a Jewish women's movement that is evolving from these same people at the same time. How can anyone hold on to, to tradition and claim to be making real changes, or maybe to put it away in a way that you did, which is, are are these really just kind of changes around the fringe, but not changing the core? And I think the answer is yes to both. Yes, these are making some changes around the fringe, but yes, they can be a radical transformation. And certainly, as you alluded to before about congregations would be so happy if anybody would want to make candles, Yes, this movement had a tremendous impact on synagogues and we might even say became regularized and uh, changed everything um, and changed the music of synagogue life. It changed the fact that rabbi, that, uh, that synagogues stopped having big high uh, bimas where the rabbi stood and came sort of down closer to where people were. So the idea that you could look to your tradition to participate in a critique of the larger society is very important. And just for the following reason, at the core of the left, whether it's the new left or the old left, was a sense that anything parochial, meaning any tradition or any commitment to your own community or neighborhood, was really a way to destroy real change. But the truth is the scholarship that emerged in that period from many people of my generation pointed out that real revolutionary change came from people, from people who had their own traditions, whether they were peasant traditions or often religious traditions. Yes, those things could be very repressive, but they also brought about the possibility of change. But at the same time, while the Jewish catalog in no way dictated what people should do. And that what was very important to the people who were part of it. But if you'd like to do it, here are some ways to think about doing it. And Chavrat Shalom, for example, was a very experimental community. They experimented with all kinds of prayer and spirituality and did not only uh, follow what might happen at a Shabbat morning service at Camp Ramah or a place like that. They were a lot more experimental than probably the New York Havara or uh, other, others that were you know, more interested in staying within the traditional prayer book, for example. But I think it would be very hard to look at the Jewish catalog and not see how important the tradition was for the people who wrote it, and giving people understanding of that tradition, understanding of Jewish law, and with that, the message that Jewish law was the norm that you could experiment with, you could move around, but it was in some sense a norm. And through the eyes of the 21st century, there are people who are very critical of the Jewish catalog for its uh, its clear embrace of Zionism. And that is not to say um, that is not to say that these people were not part of 
Peace Now and the movements that were critical of the occupation in this period of time. But it is to say that Israel was extremely important to those people. They went to Israel often. They spent time in Israel. They cared about Israel. And I think on the one hand, we could say it's a somewhat different Israel than Israel today, but critique that people have of Israel, of whether it's appropriate to call it a nationalist movement of the Jewish people without acknowledging the place of Palestinians in that, that did not form a critical part of the Jewish catalog. And there are people who are therefore very critical for it and its limitations. But I don't think you're wrong. I think normative Judaism is at least a powerful strand of that movement in that time. Uh, and that what, as you say, Judaism Unbound is engaging with and thinking about is saying, we're not sure that we should talk about something called normative Judaism that says, well, that's the baseline. And then you're welcome to experiment with it or try new things. But there is a baseline that we need to keep looking to. And that raises the question of authority, because any discussion of Jewish life is really built on that central question, which is who authorizes change? Who is in a position to ask uh, what change is appropriate? How can change be made? How do we go about looking at that? Are we bound to Judaism? by God, by Jewish law, and that binding is the covenant, or to use the term that you all have chosen to use, are we unbounded and we are not part of a system that says the covenant binds us to Jewish law? But there's no question that, to answer your question, Dan, what we always have to ask is, what's the place of authority? And a second question that's been very important in my scholarship, what does it mean to transmit Judaism or Jewishness? What do people believe should be transmitted to another generation? What has been transmitted to you? Does Judaism Unbound say that we don't need a coherent system? We don't have to model ourselves on Jewish law with halacha. And what will become the authorities by which we make these decisions? Will they be individual? How will that happen? And I think these are the questions that were not raised by the Jewish counterculture, but the Jewish counterculture inherited from many generations before them. And that, I think, is the really compelling and interesting question that any group or not group or any group of people who see themselves as visionaries or as experimenters really you're inheriting that moment where Jews had the opportunity to join the larger culture and had to ask, do I want to join it? What will happen to Judaism if I join it? And how will I begin to shape a Judaism that will make me part of the larger society? I really appreciate the lens you're bringing to our language of, of unbound and bound. We visited it and revisited it here and there, but I think you bring something really helpful. And I think it's interesting to note that a key work that we're all looking at today and that we are claiming is part of the unbounding in certain senses of Judaism is an actual bound book, the Jewish catalog. I think that there's something poetic about that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I wanted to ask a question um, both about the Jewish catalog, but maybe a bit more broadly. And it relates to a theme that we've been exploring lately, um, the question of, of folk religion and what we've been looking at is folk Judaism. Because I think you, there are a few ways you could look at the catalog and it relates to some of the questions we've asked so far. One is that in the realm of, you know, sort of folk religion, historically, the idea that religion is not only a top-down process of leaders and authorities giving to the people, perhaps this is an example of, you know, the Jewish quote-unquote folk putting together their own form of bottom-up Judaism that then, as you, as you mentioned, has an influence on the very structures and leaders that they are rebelling against. The other way to look at it, and this um, is perhaps maybe this this is still um, because of its relationship with Jewish law and its idealizing of history, part of sort of elite Judaism in in the sense that some folks talk about it in scholarship. And it's it's not so simple as saying everything is either folk or elite. But I thought I'd bring in that that sort of theme and that 
duality to to approach this and i guess i was wondering how how would you characterize the catalog's role um in relationship to that question of bottom up and top down or folk and elite and also are there are there ways in which the catalog's impact can be felt directly um in our in our current world or in later decades ways in which its bottom up nature sort of set X trend or Y way of relating to the world Jewishly that we can look at and say, wow, that's something that that the catalog really sort of set in motion? Again, wonderful questions. So uh, I, I especially appreciate them because this concept of, of folk and to use the word I used before normative um, really very much comes out of my own field, which is anthropology, where particularly anthropologists in uh, Hindu countries uh, who who were in the village studying people um, watched the process by which um, uh, the the experts, the elite priests, would come to the village a few times a year. And one of the first things that they would try to do is stamp out all the folk religion that was going on too much interest in demons or <laughs> to doing rituals that they didn't particularly appreciate or like. And then the priest would leave and they would just go back to doing the traditions. So what anthropologists tried to raise in some of those studies was the extent to which that there may have been an elite. It was usually in urban centers, but it had remarkably little impact on the kinds of traditions that people had evolved themselves. And it's an especially um, powerful uh, differentiation because it's women who often are the guardians of the folk. So men have a kind of elite control because they have more education and they have more opportunities in traditional societies or within traditional Judaism. But women have the religion of the kitchen or of the home, which has a, a, a very powerful and compelling impact on various practices. And I, I, I think this was something I actually addressed in my first book, which was uh, Prayer and Community, the Chavarah in American Judaism, where I looked at this because the first way that people talked about not so much the Chavarah, but the, the Judaism of the unlettered, uneducated children of immigrants and immigrants themselves could be nicely put away as a kind of folk tradition and what went on in seminaries and yeshivot, that was the real Judaism. and. I tried to undermine that as an anthropologist studying Havara Judaism by claiming that this was not just a folk Judaism, this was the actual practice of Jews, and that we need to understand Judaism by what people do and not set up these false and uncomfortable polarizations that are almost inevitably condescending. And again, they question the normative. Can we only call Judaism normative in that sense? And probably what's, what's most different about 2017 and really the 21st century from the period of the 1970s when we're talking about this kind of high water mark of Havara Judaism is in fact a resurgence of Orthodox Judaism, which literally was unimaginable in the 1960s. The historian Jonathan Sarna, I think, has done a wonderful job in showing that that Judaism was always there on the fringes with Holocaust survivors out of the mainstream in, you know, in different parts of New York where it wasn't visible, but it was always there after the war. And for a number of reasons that we don't have time to talk about, eventually takes hold and, and grows. But, you know, the Jewish catalog was actually reviewed in modern Orthodox publications, which I think you could imagine would never happen today. The distance between Jews was not as great or grave as it is today. And that polarization, I think, creates a kind of Judaism unbound that really is even more possible than it was in the late 20th century, because there's far fewer moments of connection, much less of a middle, much less of an investment in one another. And it means, quite honestly, when I think about it for myself, for my own family, 
I think about throwing up a deck of cards and wondering where they will all land. We just are in that moment of not just polarization, but possibility. What will this look like? Who will step forward? Who will make claims for what is Jewish and what is not? And who, who is going to say that's not Jewish? Do people practicing this kind of much more different kind of Judaism that you've described that you're interested in? It isn't just a folk Judaism anymore because there can only be a folk Judaism when everybody agrees what the, the normative tradition is, whether it's Hinduism or it's Islam or whatever it is. Um, nobody's going to care if the village priest shows up at your minion somewhere and says to you, hey, this isn't real Judaism. I mean, nobody cares about that. That is what's radically democratic about Judaism, no matter what. We're not the Catholic Church. There is nobody at the top who gets to say, no, that's not real. And that's also the question of, and how it's passed on. Who, who will carry that mantle of a different kind of Jewishness? Do we care? Does anybody care? Is what we make up now good enough and it works? And so the biggest difference then, I think, between that context of Chavarad Judaism and the context of today is that there's little, there's much less constraint on Jewish practice than there ever was. The, the other thing that um, I think I understand but still reject about the folk and the normative really comes out of the experience of the feminist critique of Judaism with the women who didn't walk away, because that's the easy thing to do in the church or in Judaism, is to say, this is unambiguously patriarchal, I'm out of here. But to say, this is unambiguously patriarchal, but I'm going to devote my life to finding the texts that came out of the tradition that question that, and to historicize that patriarchy and say, it was there, but it wasn't always there. That's a lot more interesting question. And that makes those distinctions, in my mind, between folk and normative, a lot less interesting. And it makes the much more interesting questions for me, what's the authority by which change is made? And how do we transmit that change over time? And how do we do it in the 21st century in, um, in a world in which there is a great deal of intermarriage? So... Jewish law or even reform Jewish ideas about what parent counts or doesn't count as Jewish has changed. We live in a time, as I know you're very aware, that the idea of endogamy, which is what anthropologists call in marriage within a group, that endogamy is treated as racism by a great many people. So that the idea that you want to be within your own community create families within that community, and that that is the norm is now under question radically and dramatically is also something that's very interesting about the 21st century, which is the question of who is a Jew is a question of authority. It's a question of the norm, but it's a question of everyday life for a lot of people who are trying to create a Jewishness that's not built on the assumption, which is that Jews marrying Jews make Jewish families, and that we welcome anybody who wants to make a Jewish family, we just need you to convert, which in the 21st century has raised a lot of questions. And so what I would tell you the biggest difference of the many I've described between the mid to late 20th century and now is that Havara countercultural baby boom Judaism came of age in a time when Americans were deeply, deeply exploring their past, their roots, their authenticity. Having roots and being someone worked, as you can imagine, incredibly well to creating a Jewish life. But that is not the world of the 21st century in which we don't care about roots anymore. We want to make it up. We are living in a world in which particularism and endogamy, and those issues don't make sense in a multiracial, multicultural world in which we have to ask a lot of questions about what that means and where do Jews stand in terms of whiteness or not whiteness. I, I don't know if your listeners know this, but there was a discussion about whether the woman who stars in 
Wonder Woman could be thought of as white. I mean, that's the kind of, in my opinion, absurdity of which we've come in which Jews are trying to say where they fit into the whiteness issue. Uh, Jews in the United States who are Ashkenazic and frankly, for the most part, Sephardic for many generations here are, of course, white people. So what do we do with that? Where do we fit in with that? And that is the biggest difference, because to try to be Jewish in the 21st century is so much harder than it was in the 70s and 80s, for sure. I want to go back to the folk question for just a second, and I'm wondering if you perhaps could help us grapple towards some language here, because I think that the you know, from an anthropological perspective, because I, I, I th- to describe our own time and to sort of help us think about our own time, because I think that what I'm trying to grapple towards is this idea that, uh, on the one hand, I agree with you that that right, if the elite is breaking down, then folk makes less sense, and it's not the right, not necessarily the right way to think about it. But I think the power of 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 bringing out the the idea of folk Judaism is is to sort of make the point that um, that there's a way in which the story of Judaism has been told over time that there's a normative Judaism and people either do or do not uh, observe it as opposed to that those claiming that there's a normative Judaism have been one of many voices over the course of time. And perhaps we live in a time where that voice is less important to the definition of what the Judaism of the future will be. But it sort of comes into play, for example, on this question of the Israeli chief rabbinate's acceptance of, you know, various conversion, you know, rabbis to be authorized to perform conversion, which is actually sort of a dispute it within normative Judaism, but it, it feels like people at sort of every level look at that and they kind of get angry about these Israeli chief rabbis as opposed to just ignoring them, right? And just saying, who cares what they think? You know, we, they, they're not in charge, uh, right? And, but people, uh, many people seem to not have that idea. So instead they look at them and they say, well, they're doing something that I don't like and therefore maybe I'm going to leave it or maybe I'm going to fight them as opposed to sort of feeling comfortable and saying, no, so so perhaps that um, opportunity, that's an abdication of, you know, of connection to my kind of Judaism. And here now let's all band together and build a new kind of Judaism that doesn't care what those chief rabbis in Israel have to say. And th- that doesn't seem to be sort of the dominant attitude or the dominant way that people think about it. So what I'm grappling for is language that helps talk about the the idea that y- that regular Jews can sort of seize this moment and say, let's define a Judaism that is powerful for us. And what could we call that? The idea that there has been a single normative Judaism and it is unchanged from uh, Moses at Sinai to the present is a highly, as of course you know, a highly ideological view of what we would today call Orthodox Judaism or we might call normative Judaism. And it's crucial to any of us who are engaged in changing Judaism, challenging Judaism, believing that it is a living, changing set of traditions, but not just in the present, that it always has been. Judaism is, was, and always will be a changing tradition within history. So you asked, why should anyone care about the chief rabbinate and what they stand for? And there are two answers. If you don't live in Israel, you don't have to care at all about the chief rabbinate and what their position is. If you live in Israel, you have to care about it because they control resources, they control access to sacred places, uh, and you can ask questions about what the relationship between religion and nation should be and what the framers of Zionism thought the relationship between religion and nation should be because it certainly is not what is happening in Israel in the 21st century. That is non-negotiable. There were Orthodox Zionists who were great thinkers, but nobody who founded Israel envisioned what is happening in Israel today. And I think that's not a debatable matter. Why would anybody outside the land of Israel care about what the chief rabbinate does or doesn't do? Because, and you alluded to this, because they will not give up their right to define their Judaism to that group of men. 
But there is a third option that you suggest, and that is, I don't care. I am not bound by normative Judaism. And if I care deeply about normative Judaism, it doesn't rest with political appointments within the chief rabbinate of the state of Israel. And so that's a pretty, I think, straightforward answer. But it does come back to the question of how will we define what binds us? And there's a lot of versions of binding. What binds the Jewish people to each other? What binds Jews to Jewish traditions? What binds Jews to Jewish practices? Because Judaism is built on practices and not just ideas. And I think those are all wonderful questions. And I think they're the questions that what you're trying to do and the people you are part of should contend with. I don't think there are any answers. I don't think we know how it will all come out. To my mind, as an anthropologist who's thought for my professional career about, about group, peoplehood, tradition, normative, all these issues, not just for the Jewish people, but for people throughout the world, I think those are the right questions. As we're arcing towards our conclusion, I wanted to to bring back some bring back the Chavara movement with which we started, um, because I just had a thought that I I hadn't connected uh, until just now. But the word Chavara in Hebrew, um, its root is the same as like Chaver, friend, and it actually means bound. It it actually refers to like things that are bound to one another. the uh, The word for notebook uh-huh. in Hebrew is Machberet, which is I mean, because it's a bound book. And so, I I mean, it feels pretty poetic that that's the case given the direction that our conversation has gone. But I guess what I would love to ask, and and you you did offer some thoughts on this before, but just as a way of helping us weave together the themes that we've talked about, the the 60s and 70s today, um, how can we connect um, even more thoroughly some of some of the themes of what Chavara brought to the table, some of their innovation, some of their thinking, some of their ideology, to the extent that those ideas are relevant to our world, despite the differences in milieu that you've talked about, what could we really take with us as we continue these Judaism Unbound conversations and hopefully our listeners continue all the on-the-ground work that they're doing? What can what can we take from this Chavara movement that ironically enough, comes from the word for bound, but might push us to be unbound. So I think you put that so beautifully. Well, let me tell you as a scholar what I learned, because my study of a Chavara, but it was really actually called a minion. A minion was a, um, a, a less intense version of a Chavara, which, which, uh, in which people spent a lot more time together. Minyanim, which were springing up all over the U.S. and are still there today, were just independent and met around holidays and Shabbat. Um, what I learned as a scholar, I went in as an anthropologist, I did a study, I spent a year and a half almost talking, interviewing, and then I began to read Jewish history, American Jewish history, which I really had not done before. And what I learned in that process was the fact that, that at least American Jewish life is shaped by generations, and that every generation believes that they have the perfect synthesis between Jewishness and Americanness, Jewishness and the dominant culture. And I always go back to the fact that Isaac Mayer Wise, one of the founders of Reform Judaism, wrote a, a prayer book in the United States, which he called Minhag America, meaning the way we will pray in an American style. And he modeled it on the Ashkenaz Minhag or the Sephardic Minhag. And he honestly believed that this prayer book would last for every Jew who ever lived in America subsequently. It didn't even make it for 50 years. Generations define their Jewishness. They don't do it monolithically. They do it in different ways. And I like that. I think that's inspiring. I think that's an important thing. And I think what I wrote about is that the Chavarad Judaism really brought to light the power and impact of the counterculture and a group of very visionary people who were able to rethink and relive a Jewishness that that became very routinized and very much part of Jewish life. I know many people still who were part of the Chavura 
in New York and Boston, other places. I don't think any of their children practice Jewishness or Judaism in any way that looks remotely like their parents do. Just doesn't. It's just so powerful to understand that it is very hard to synthesize Jewishness with a larger culture that's so dynamic. So that's one of the things that I take away from it. A group of people with, for the most part, very good Jewish educations, almost all of whom went to Camp Ramah, the conservative movement, breathe life from a cultural revolution around them that's exciting and dynamic and leads them to do extraordinarily interesting things. Um, And so that's, I think, one thing to really take away from what the Havara, what the Jewish catalog, what a particular generation of Jews did, again, to emphasize at a time when that was a lot easier to do, because Jewishness was really the cultural mainstream of cultural critique. Another thing that the Havara did was to emphasize the importance of community and what the nature of community will look like in the 21st century is not something that it looked like then, but is something to pay close attention to because it is so difficult to take Judaism and Jewishness seriously without that sense of community, whatever that looks like or what sort of format it takes. And I think, as I've tried to emphasize, um, and as you so poetically put about the nature of, of um, the binding of a Chavura, um, is how to raise these questions that if you care deeply about where you stand within Judaism and want to change it or transform it or think about it, how do you do that? If you want to dip in, if you want to be in a long line of, of uh, pick and choose Jews, just know that you didn't make this up in the 21st century, that uh, rage at federations for not turning over all their resources to your generation has a nice long tradition that stretches right back to about 1968 (laughs) uh, when that same thing happened in New York and Boston as well. Um, So I find it very inspiring to know that I'm not alone in making change, that there are nice long traditions that are Jewish that precede them. And in that sense, I think the Havura and the Jewish catalog is not something to try to emulate or to jump into, but to understand that you're in a wonderful tradition of being bound and unbound. Thank you so much, Ravel and Prell, for joining us today. It's been a fantastic conversation. It was a pleasure. I enjoyed it tremendously. And I think your podcasts are really terrific and really are speaking to the moment we're in. And I look forward to listening to them in the future. Thanks again to Ravel and Prell for joining us for this episode of Judaism Unbound. We want to close out this episode in the same way that we always do, by encouraging y'all out there, the listeners, to be in touch with us. And there are a few ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second, you can check out our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And last but not least, you can always hit us up via email at dan at nextjewishfuture.org or lex at nextjewishfuture.org. The last plug we like to make is that you can always support us financially with either a one-time gift or a monthly recurring donation. And you can do that at judaismunbound.com slash donate. So thanks so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.